Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Bonnie Snyder with us. Bonnie is the high school outreach fellow at FIRE, and she is the author of the book, Indoctrinate, How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. And y'all go ahead. You can pre-order it now. What is September 14th is when it comes out, right, Bonnie? That's right. So before we talk about this book and all Bonnie's research, uh, Bonnie, did you bring a uh, something to drink to our conversation? I did. I brought uh, Perrier is what I'm drinking today. Okay. Because they were out of the Pellegrino that I I normally buy. (laughs) David, you? I've reverted back to Diet Coke. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm, disappointed. Yeah. Well, you could add some bourbon into it, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you what I'm doing. You know, these hard seltzers are kind of becoming the, the thing, right? And Texas is like into these hard seltzers. And so Austin has all their own brands. And so I'm trying a new, I'm going through the Texas brands of spiked seltzers. Shotgun is the one that I'm doing today. So there, <laughs> nice. there we go. Yeah. Very Texas. Shotgun. I know. Yes. <laughs> that, well, the last one, lot of you remember was ranch water. So yes, yes. yes. That's why I like that name. I'm making it, I'm making it through the Texas brands. Anyways. Um, all right. Indoctrinate. Bonnie, I know you started this book and you have got so much insight because as the high school outreach for fire, you are you're on the front lines of hearing stories of parents, students, teachers. I mean, tell us how this book came about and what its main thrust is. And yeah, just that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. At fire, we hear from uh, mostly, well, parents, we hear from students and we hear from teachers as well who are as frustrated as you can be with what's going on in in the schools right now. And so I think I've probably been working on this book as a hobby, really, for almost the last decade. I, I know that a lot of us have been aware that our schools have been, um, if not hotbeds of what you could call indoctrination, that there's been sort of this low-grade chronic problem that's been festering. And when people bring it up uh, in the past, they've sort of been poo-pooed and uh, ignored, or I guess the, the current term is gaslighted and told it's not happening. And, uh, and parents have been inclined to just focus on getting their own kids through, which is part of what has allowed this problem. Because, you know, the, the parents and the students come and go, but the teachers stay. And, uh, and little by little, things have ratcheted and ratcheted to a point where it's gone from being this low-grade chronic condition to being su- seemingly suddenly uh, very acute and in- no longer tolerable. So Indoctrinate is um, basically about how indoctrination shortchanges students and what we can do to re- restore robust free thought to our schools. So, you know, I I came up with the title just thinking, well, we need to undo this indoctrination. And I thought, oh, we need to undoctrinate the schools. So that's where that title came from. Yeah, I see that you, one of the things that you're saying in the problem, and this is really fascinating to me, and I wonder why you think the origin of this is, 
is that teachers are acting as parents and taking over that role and and kind of superseding parent parental roles. How did that how did that seep in? How did that ideology of, of teachers? I mean, we know that now teachers. You and I were talking before we got uh, came on recording. I mean, teachers are not even telling parents some of the stuff oh, yeah. that they're doing. How did well, how did that start? I, I, I mean, I really think that it starts with a a mindset. It starts with a level of certainty that your position is so right that it justifies anything that you might do to promote it, uh, including, you know, any means necessary because the ends justify the means. So at FIRE, we like to talk a lot. um, For those who don't know, FIRE is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We defend constitutional rights on campus. That includes free speech. So we're very concerned with issues like the chilling of speech. Speech, the narrowing of the opinion corridor, um, and um, per, and defending dissenters. We have had a high school outreach program. You know, normally fires uh, operating sphere is the higher is higher education, but because we realize that kids are showing up now on campus with these really unusual ideas about free speech that aren't necessarily constitutionally accurate. We, we've had a department now for five years where we've been doing this K-12 outreach, which is how I'm hearing um, about these problems that I'm also experiencing myself. So I would say part of it is just this mindset of, of certainty. I think that some of the ideologies that we are now confronting carry Adherence to them seem to become possessed with a certain amount of messianic zeal that causes them to promote it in a way with which ideas normally are not uh, are not in the classroom. Um, I would say that the temptation to misuse the classroom for partisan ends is eternal. Uh, and this problem is much broader than what, you know, the, the current buzzword is CRT, critical race theory. But we're just as concerned at fire. We're nonpartisan and we're just as concerned with uh, anybody misusing the classroom. You know, back in the day, it might have been promoting uh, a certain denomination's preferred prayers in the classroom or or of other ideas with which not all families might agree. So typically in the classroom, you're going to be promoting sort of this lowest common denominator of community values, you know, things like honesty or hard work or kindness and things that we all agree on and that we would have a looser hold in the classroom when it comes to different values. And traditionally, values are in the realm of the parents, of the family. And teachers, you know, are not trained in which values are the right values to hold. They are not certified in what are the right values to hold. There's no such thing. You know, they're certified in either English or in history or in gym, you know, and we don't need the phys ed teacher telling our kids what the right way to think about the 2020 election is. That just is beyond the scope of their of their uh, professional duties. So, um, you know, in terms of the genesis of this book as well, I I said that I have experienced this. I have um, my own personal experience with these problems probably goes back to when I was in graduate school myself. I think I'm among the last group of probably students to go through American schools before it got weird. Uh, I graduated high school in the early 80s, college in the late 80s, and um, it was still, 
you know, there was liberalism on campus. I went to Harvard as an undergrad. It's certainly known as a, a liberal college, but it wasn't promoted that, you know, the way it is now. I never had a problem with any of the professors, although I did. Uh, interesting, interestingly, I was only assigned one book more than once during my whole undergraduate time at Harvard, and that was the Communist Manifesto. It was assigned to me six separate times, um, which I, I could speak more about that. Um, but I, I really can relate having had to pull my daughter out of a school, and it was for partisan teaching, but more than that, it was for the, the straw that I could have gotten past that if it was the type of a teacher who could have listened to feedback and altered her teaching to accommodate reasonable feedback. But instead, what I experienced was lying. And at that point, I was like, you know, you're not just a bad teacher, you're a bad person. And you are not a suitable role model for my kid or for other people's kids. So that was a deal breaker for me. That was at a private school. My kids mostly went to public school, but that was a private school. Um, we have noticed that this problem at, at FIRE, we've noticed that it seems to be most advanced in affluent school districts, um, which would include privates. Um, you know, it's, I, I think there are still some pockets where it hasn't reached. Uh, thankfully, in the United States, we are a decentralized system of schooling for better or for worse. But when it comes to bad practice, it's for better. Um, but, you know, just this past week, uh, in the last 10 days, there have been uh, three really interesting stories that I think really reveal the extent to which the contempt for parents um, is manifesting itself, or at least the, the main one is that a teacher in, um, well, let me think where she was, she was in Utah. And this is a teacher who didn't make it past the first day of school this year. She showed up and she sort of told this, and she did tell the students that you need to get vaccinated, which of course is her opinion, a uh, medical decision for the families, you know, she's not a, a medical doctor. She told them they should get vaccinated and that, um, that if they're, and that they shouldn't, that they don't have to listen to what their parents say. You don't have to listen to your parents. Uh, most of y'all parents are dumber than you are. She told the students that their parents are stupid. Um, she said, if you don't agree, you keep it to yourself because I'm just going to make fun of you, which I think really, it's so interesting that she verbalized a lot of what we already know is going on. She's going to use her position of authority in the classroom to um, demean her students, to get them to agree with her. She uh, has no respect for their parents. And she actually said, Go ahead and tattle to me to the administ about me to the administration. They aren't going to do anything anyway, um, which might have been, you know, they and the students called her bluff. Students filmed this so you can watch the video of it. Uh, and to their credit, the school did um, fire her. So uh, that, like I said, that probably was what did it in. The other things they might have been OK with, I, I don't know. But um, but that was too much. And she's done. Um, the, the other two that are really interesting was. And, and is so revealing of this sense of invulnerability that these teachers have. And um, th the other thing that really inspired me to write this book was just noticing how badly they were violating just really fundamental teaching practice and educator ethics. Um, and there's so they, all of these teachers are just bragging about what they're doing. They have this total sense of 
invulnerability and immunity from which, which obviously hopefully now is shattered. Um, the, the second one was a teacher who went on TikTok to giggle about how she removed the American flag from her classroom because it made her uncomfortable, she said. And she has a gay pride flag in her classroom. And when students asked her how they could salute the flag when it wasn't there, she encouraged them to salute the gay pride uh, flag instead. And um, I think she's under investigation. And then the so really- She removed uh, the American flag, just I'm making sure I heard you right, and put up a gay pride flag. And they asked if they, if you know, if that wasn't something that they wanted to salute. And she said to salute it anyways. Did I hear that right? Um, she, they said, how can we do the Pledge of Allegiance without the flag in the classroom? And she, and a student said, well, there's another flag. And she, and she sort of jokingly said, why don't you do the pledge to the gay pride flag? This is again, a, um, a video that is available so you can see it for yourselves. And, um, and just, yes, just today, I think a teacher was fired or is about to be fired from what I'm reading in California. And this one is a real whopper. I actually have this list that I started probably about eight years ago of what I call whoppers. And I just write them down. And this is how I sort of wrap my head around what's happening. Um, I was hearing a lot of anecdotal stories and I don't include those because I can't verify whether somebody's exaggerating or or telling the truth. So whenever there's a published story, um, which didn't used to happen very often because of fear of retaliation, but I think that the the fear of what's going on is now greater than the fear of reporting it. Um, so in any case, this, the, this is one of the biggest whoppers I've seen was this uh, teacher in, well, this, this teacher exposed himself on video and he talked about how he has 180 days to radicalize his students. And he gives them extra credit for participating in, you know, marches and other activism, which is another big problem is, um, you know, this sort of civic engagement. It goes by a, a number of different names, but it's not classroom learning. You know, in New York, we had the whole school district let out to participate in the climate change march. Um, but this teacher um, was exposed for, yeah, and he had an anti, th these teachers seem to like having flags up in their classroom other than American. He had an Antifa flag up in his classroom and he was uh, apparently actively promoting Antifa. And, and a student indicated that it made him uncomfortable, him or her uncomfortable. And he implied that that makes you a fascist to the to the students. So um, there's a really fiery school board meeting that I haven't finished watching yet, but you can view that online. And um, and actually the comedian Rob Schneider tweeted about it and he said, never in my life did I think I would sit through an entire school board meeting, but I was riveted. <laughs> so that's just a little of what's going on right now in K-12. So, Thank you. That's that's fascinating. Um, so um, obviously, there's this you know robust discussion going on around critical race theory in the classroom, and um, it's been interesting to watch because we were watching it and debating it before it became the big public debate that it is today. Right. And um, at first, the people who are sort of denying that it's done at all are saying, well, that's not CRT. CRT is some um, arcane legal theory taught at law schools. Um, but um, then they'll say, 
but it is very important that schools teach systemic racism in the, about systemic racism in the classroom. And, um, and when I'll say, well, are you arguing that all Americans systemically racist or there might be systemic racism in certain institutions? How would you characterize systemic racism? Um, is it a discussion or is it something you're gonna tell students exist? Right. Um, and, and most of them are very matter of fact. Yes, it is a fact that is not an opinion. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how much you've encountered that and, and, and how much you think um, it's currently being taught that way in the American classroom or in various places. Yeah, I mean, I can't quantify exactly how widespread this is anecdotally. It's, uh, as I said, it seems to be fairly prevalent among affluent communities. That is exactly the problem. I mean, there's a, a difference between teaching something as an idea to think about and teaching something as a conclusion that must be accepted and affirmed. And that's where we get into what at FIRE we call compelled belief, which, you know, the Supreme Court has proscribed uh, in West Virginia versus Barnett. So, I don't, you know, fire, we're a free speech organization. We're not going to say that um, we're, we're not for censoring, censoring ideas. That being said, I'm not so sure that critical race theory really is developmentally appropriate for the ages that it is has now filtered down to. I think it's really a rather esoteric academic theory kind of for graduate school analysis among people who are well-versed in introductory knowledge. I don't think it's a good introduction to, uh, you know, a field of study. I think that it's demanding too much of kids and they're likely to pick up on the, you know, how, what kids pick up on. They're sort of learning, I think, to weaponize some of this terminology to gain status among their peers and to put down other people. So the way that it is being deployed in K-12, I don't think is as pure as it once was in academia. Um, I think it's sort of like a game of telephone where it's passed down and it really doesn't bear a lot of resemblance. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a theory, not a theology. And when they're, they're working backwards from conclusions is the problem. And that is really not how scholarly uh, the scholarly process is meant to operate. It's supposed to be open ended where we, you know, examine evidence and then we reach conclusions, but they're basically saying, here are conclusions, and now we want you to retrofit everything you learn into this summative critique um, and uh, of American history, which is so bleak and negative. And uh, again, I, I don't have a problem with critiques, but it's like, you don't understand war and peace by reading a review of war and peace or a criticism of war and peace. You First you read it and then you might read some criticisms that shed different perspectives on it. And it's sort of like reading a review of a movie or reading a review of the movie that was made out of the book that you're not going to read. So I, I just feel like it's um, not the best learning exercise and certainly the anecdotes that I'm hearing confirm that suspicion. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that if you wanted to teach about systemic racism, you could easily look at a case study, let's say like Flint, Michigan, or something in the criminal justice system, and you could expose students, I'm talking about, you know, juniors and seniors in high school or whatever, um, to arguments on both sides. John McWhorter says X, um, you know, Ibrahim X Kendi says Y. Right. Um, now, 
What do you think about it? Go out and, and, and tell us what how, how you thought of McWhorter's argument. What did you think about Abraham X. Kendi's argument? Um, what's the difference? What are the assumptions that they each hold? And that you could actually uh, you could actually help students and develop critical thinking skills and still teach about the problem of systemic racism without telling kids what to think. And I, I, I just I haven't seen any examples of that anywhere except maybe in what I would do in my household or what you might do in your household. But I just I haven't seen that in any way, shape or form, you know, um, put out there in the education sphere. Am I missing something? It doesn't exist or it just exists in very rare places. I think that one of the things that is happening is that a lot of good teachers are afraid to tackle controversial issues. So they're the ones who are sort of shying away from debates in the classroom. Kids aren't getting enough practice with it. But the people who are the most strident in their views feel very empowered to impose these one-sided lessons on students. So I think there's too little of what you're describing going on and too much of the one-sidedness happening. I think students should be exposed to a certain amount appropriate of controversial topics. Please not all controversy all the time. That's just exhausting. Um, but, you know, a, a reasonable amount. So I think in, to some extent, there's too little of it going on. Um, and then there's too much of the heavy handed, um, ideologically driven, uh, I, I call it sort of like pre-chewed, pre-digested content that's being delivered to student, which is really a very low level learning activity. Um, you know, if you've ever studied Bloom's taxonomy, the very lowest level I used to, when I was a, a young teacher, I used to get scolded for having too many activities that were at the lowest level of Bloom's taxonomy, which is mere memorization. And that's where indoctrination falls. You, you know, the kids, if you ask kids, they know what the teacher wants to hear. They're very quick at picking that up. And if you really mm -hmm. think, I mean, I, I take comfort in the fact that kids are sharp um, and that I, I think a lot of these teachers who think they are indoctrinating kids are failing at it because I don't think kids appreciate it. I, I, maybe they do succeed with, with some of them, but uh, most people don't like being treated this way. And so, um, I, I take comfort that adolescents inwardly are rebelling against these efforts. You said something that I just want to kind of highlight, maybe you can expand upon, is you see this happening in the most affluent areas. I thought that this is more of a kind of a public school problem. I know it's part in the private schools as well, but can you expand upon where you see this problem and, and and maybe why it's more in the affluent areas than in other areas? Yeah, well, now that you put it that way, I think that we also are seeing it in some urban school districts that have a lot of minority children where teachers feel that this is helpful for them. So maybe we're seeing it sort of at both ends of the continuum. Um, I think the place you're least likely to find it would be in, you know, rural areas far removed from cities and affluent suburbs. Um, but I think you are finding it in urban areas and I think you are finding it in affluent areas. And I think that, you know, it kind of is an affluent mentality meant to, um, I guess, empower the people that they think are being discriminated against. But ironically, I and a lot of other people, a lot of scholars that are in touch with us and that I, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, feel resentful of the disempowering way it is discouraging 
kids and really keeping them from developing agency. And we do hear a lot of minority parents who are stepping forward and saying, please stop telling my kid that he is a victim of this omnipresent you know, oppression from which this country will never be free. How is that helping my kid? Um, so, you know, organizations like 1776 Unites has a lot of scholars who are trying to oppose that kind of messaging and pointing out that this really is not helpful to their kids. Please stop doing it. You know, and I asked that because it was interesting. I was taking notes as I was reading your book and it seemed to me, uh, really it's a public school crisis. I know, I know we see it throughout private schools as well. But what is worrying me is that so many people who have the means take their kids out of public schools. And maybe this is, again, more in the urban areas, take their kids out of public schools to put them in uh, an environment that they think, you know, has more aligned with their values. And so if that is the case, then we are actually exacerbating a problem where we are creating a bigger socioeconomic divide. We are not addressing diversity at all. We are actually like, we, we are regressing in the sense that we are segregating, if you will. So these good intentions could end up being, have the exact opposite effect. Agreed. And there is a lot of anxiety. Um, there have been a couple of good articles that have come out recently. One of them, I think, is um, private schools have become obscene. That might have been a Barry Weiss article. Um, there's a lot of soul searching going on right now in private schools. And actually, I think adopting some of this ideology is one of the ways that I think they're trying to assuage some of the perhaps unconscious guilt maybe that they're feeling over exactly the um, the distance that you're describing. And ironically, you know, one of the best ways to improve the public schools in urban areas would probably be if the private schools closed. Um, that being said, I'm in touch with uh, and hearing from quite a few private school parents who are very concerned and, um, you know, I think have the best of intentions and want to do the right thing and are are trying to uh, improve what's going on there and that are certainly generous benefactors and donors to a lot of great causes and organizations. So, I mean, there are obviously good people and bad people in all of these organizations, um, but what we're talking about are sort of you know, trends that we're observing that are really, I, th I think, reaching a peak. I mean, I have a really good feeling right now that the pushback um, this year is going to recalibrate things in a positive direction and, and restore some semblance of balance. We've read recently that um, the accrediting institutions for private schools are enforcing certain diversity standards that are being used in the curriculum in these various these various schools, and I'm wondering um, if you've looked into that at all. If you understand the relationship between these accrediting bodies and private schools, and if there's anything that that you think could be done on a legal front in some of these places, I mean, to I, to what degree are these accrediting bodies sanctioned by the government to accredit? schools and and does that and I, mean, I have no idea so i'm asking a question i really uh don't know and if if they are does that make them at all susceptible to you know what congress might say about it so that's that's the question 
Oh, by the way, I think it was Caitlin Flanagan who wrote the article about private schools that you were referring to, not Barry Weiss. Okay, thank you for that correction. Yeah, yeah. I, I, as for accrediting agencies, um, I would say a couple of things. One is that FIRE has fought accrediting agencies in the past. One of the tools that FIRE uses is basically strongly worded letters where we point out, you know, some important uh, factors that these organizations might not be considering before we would file lawsuits. And um, NCATE is uh, the accrediting agency for teacher education. And a lot of this does go back to the uh, the education schools, which is a topic we might want to touch on, because yes. I think this is really where the battle needs to head. They, there has been a lot of, I'll just go ahead and call it rot in the education schools for a very long time. I'm an alumnus of, uh, alumna of um, Penn State's College of Education, and I could say a lot about that. Um, but at NK, at one point, was trying to require teachers in training to demonstrate certain dispositions, which basically is saying that your mindset has to agree with the opinions that we want you to hold. And these dispositions were uh, had to be social justice oriented. And that's, of course, a buzzword for certain you know, a certain worldview and certain perspectives. And so there are a couple of really interesting, well-written letters by Will Creeley that went to NCATE and FIRE was successful in getting them to drop that standard because it was basically saying, you must think the way we expect you to think in order to become a teacher in this country, which is very un-American. Um, and as for accrediting agencies in K-12, uh, I am in touch with parents who are trying to fight this battle among the private school accreditors, um, which I believe are regional because they're they're trying to deal with a regional one. Uh, as for the public ones, I'm not exactly sure what the official government sanction of them is. I'm I'm not one one of Fire's attorneys. I'm an educator. Uh, you know, but there are things like middle states would have been the accrediting agency that was in charge of the schools that I attended and that my kids attended. Um, and, you know, normally accrediting agencies look at really simple things like, are the teachers in the school certified? Do you offer, you know, what is the range of courses that you offer? How many credit hours are required for graduation? Do you have books in your library? Is there a librarian? You know, they're kind of just counting these factors to make sure that the school meets the minimum standards. Um, I haven't heard any problems personally about public school accreditors, but I am hearing some about private school accreditors uh, and starting to trying to do the same sort of things with diversity statements. And, you know, schools must affirm these sorts of views. Um, and I've also heard some concerning things when schools are being evaluated, that they are pushing ideologies that some schools, you know, have in their founding language um, that, you know, you know, private schools are allowed to stand for something, to have to be mission driven. Public schools have to, of course, accept everyone, but private schools can be more selective. They can, you know, you could have a private school that's a Catholic school. Obviously, they're going to be promoting a specific worldview. Um, so we, um, yeah, and, and this sort of brings up the other problem we're seeing in schools now, which was it's so interesting to me how my kids are now in their 20s but when they were in school the programming that they were mostly subjected to was anti-bullying programming and and so i i'm working on an article that i'm calling like from anti-bullying programming to bullying students in the classroom which is just so ironic because 
Um, and this anti-bullying programming was often run by outside organizations that really were not certified teachers. And they would come in and my kids hated it. They would deliver this rather substandard programming with this very milk toast, sappy uh, messaging that most of the kids, I think, kind of rolled their eyes at. But apparently uh, it kind of I think Greg Lukianoff might say that it hypersenses. He's, he is the president and CEO of FIRE, and he wrote Coddling of the American Mind. And he wonders if some of this programming didn't hypersensitize kids to overreact to the least bit of adversity in their lives, verbal adversity, and to demand that, you know, authority figures provide, you know, stop it instead of when we were kids, we were told to handle it ourselves for the most part. Um, and I, I do think, you know, we, you don't, I don't think there's much anti-bullying training going on in the schools. And I've talked to school administrators who I think will have, who have acknowledged to me that it was very unsuccessful and kind of a complete failure, uh, if not counterproductive. And now what we have is this DEI training coming in. And again, we have, there's an explosion of organizations now that are offering it. There's no one vetting it for quality. Uh, there is no real credentials for who's an approved provider of DEI. And that's influencing a lot of these um, accreditors statements, a lot of what's going on in these, these collective belief messages that schools are putting out. And, you know, my question is, who are these, these people and why are they qualified to be in the schools? Because in a public school, anyway, you're supposed to be in front of a licensed professional at all times. And, um, you know, in an extreme case in the Boston public schools, they were they had outside people coming in and basically conducting unlicensed therapy uh, in the schools. And you could look that up. Uh, I think there was a whole um, expose on that in the Boston papers. Uh, and they had to get them out of the schools. So there's a lot of unregulated um, mental programming going on in the schools right now, which needs to be reined in, in my opinion. So you you mentioned something going beyond accreditation, but let's let's talk about teacher training. Um, I'll tell you experience experience of mine. I was looking the other day at at one of the my local school districts teacher application that they use, and you have to you have to commit to and the, you know the words it's the so the social justice the equity and whatnot even as an application. Um, which I found shocking. And again, you know, here's the thing though. I mean, we know that we've twisted our language, right? I mean, you know, equity means something different to some people than it does to others. So, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that it's coming from a good place and maybe a place that just doesn't realize that the language has been twisted. But, but when I hear that teachers have been trained this way, I can't help but to think that there's something uh, more behind the, the curtain. So can you tell us a little bit about the, how teachers are being trained and how this has influenced the K through 12 education space? Yeah. And I know that our lawyers at FIRE are looking at these diversity commitments that are now being included at, in, in application packets for, uh, for professors. And I wasn't even aware that it was happening with K-12 teachers. So I'm going to have to look into that. That doesn't surprise me. Um, as far as teacher training goes, I, I, you know, I have a big section in my book where I look, you know, where did this problem come from? And I talk about downward drift from the academy. I look into the numbers of how unbalanced the faculties are in the different schools. And of course, the social sciences are among the most unbalanced. Um, and I looked at the curricula at different 
schools of graduate schools of education. There are two different types of, of education schools, I should point out. You know, I, I've actually taught in a college of education. So some students just get their teaching credential as part of their undergraduate degree. Uh, and that's the kind of program where I was teaching developmental psychology courses. Um, I personally got my certificate as an alternate route uh, teacher candidate, and that's where you get an undergraduate degree in the liberal in a liberal sub discipline, and then you do it at night, and the school pays for me to go. So I probably had as little teacher training as you could have, and still get your certificate. Um, but then there are the graduate schools of education, and these are the ones that have the most prestige, and these are the ones where I, I think the imbalance is probably the the steepest. And you know, Harvard's Graduate School of Education um, is up there, but I think probably the one that has the biggest reputation with the most influence on other schools would be Columbia, the teachers' college there. And so I went and looked at their curricula. And I would encourage other people to do the same. And you will find very few classes there that look like, at least when I looked, which was probably about a year ago now, um, that look like they're going to help teachers to be prepared to help students learn to read, write, uh, and do the other sorts of tasks that we uh, associate with school. The, the, the strong political ideological bents of these classes are amazing. Um, you know, I was assigned the same way that I was assigned. Um, I can't remember if this was I, I think while we were talking on, um, on the recording, I mentioned that I was assigned the Communist Manifesto six times at Harvard. And when I was in graduate school, the book that is over assigned is typically Paolo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is, you know, um, the, the name is whenever you're talking about oppressed or oppressed, you're in neo Marxist or neo Marxist territory. Um, and, and that actually, you know, when it comes to transparency, I think that um, I'll just diverge, uh, you know, or take a tangent for a second. I, I think a really useful question for parents to ask if you're wondering what's going on in the schools is to just ask, is it Marxist? Um, because it goes by so many other names. And I think that really cuts to the chase. And I, I'm not even opposed to Marxism being taught because I think it's an important ideology for everyone to understand. I am very opposed to it being taught without any contextualization or counterbalance. And um, before I go back to the teacher's college, I'll just give the example that happened at my daughter's school, which is that she was given the communist manifesto to read in high school, which is long before I was given it. Um, and I thought, okay, well, yeah, I guess this school, you know, private school is a little advanced. And then she was asked to debate the merits of communism versus capitalism. And um, the entire class, other than my daughter, agreed uh, after really deep analysis that communism was a much better system than capitalism. And she said, I tried to speak up for capitalism, but I wasn't given any readings or any content or any material. So I had nothing to say other than, you know, well, capitalism is what puts food in the supermarket. You know, that was kind of her level of analysis. And um, yeah, so uh, the, just the, the fact that a teacher would run a sham of a, a learning exercise like that without um, providing any sort of counterbalance, countervailing views in an American school, there's all sorts of, um, you know, content on capitalism that student, you know, Adam Smith, read an sure. excerpt from the book. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and they just think that you're supposed to absorb this by osmosis, but it's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. And so I, I just was like, this is, you know, this is not the level of pedagogy that I expect from a school that costs me any of my hard earned capitalist dollars. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, back to the, the education schools, it is long past time for there to be a huge correction in the education schools. Um, there's also the issue of professional ongoing training in the schools. Like I'm looking on calendars of my coworkers and they're marking the days when their kids aren't going to be in school because there's going to be professional development going on. Well, who's delivering this professional development? What exactly is happening? Because there are teachers the same way that students are filming their teachers because they are offended uh, by what's going on in their classrooms. We have teachers who are uh, keeping tabs and some of them are resigning. You know, Paul Rossi is, is an example. Dana Stengel is another. Uh, I saw one in Loudoun County and a lot of it is over the training that they're being subjected to. And when they speak up, they are uh, uh, exposed to retaliation. I, I know that Paul Rossi, when he spoke up, he, I believe, had a letter put in his file that accused him of creating a neurological imbalance in the students, which I just find hilarious. I mean, if, if I had that, I would, I would frame it. If somebody wrote a letter, but I would be so proud of uh, having done that. That's <laughs> it hilarious. doesn't even mean anything. You know, what we're talking about these education schools uh, being reformed, uh, Jennifer and I interviewed Lyle Asher, who yep. had written a couple of the articles on on this. And, yep. um, you know, I it hits me that that's a, a tremendous undertaking because it's been so many years in the works and they've so institutionalized what they do. And even to the degree, I'm sure of purging anybody who doesn't fit the bill. You know, those are people who are not going to last in that environment. They're not going to get promoted. They're not going to make, uh, you know, have jo uh, jobs for the long term and bringing in people who are, you know, might be the equivalent of like a party activist. And, uh, and then also that's what you have. You have an institution that's dominated by this sort of monoculture. And, you know, I know that there's two schools of thought on this. One is that, okay, well, we've got to reform these institutions. And the other is we've got to create new institutions. Um, where do you fall on that divide? I think in K-12, uh, we need to create new institutions. I really do. Um, and I hope that I can be part of maybe making that happen. I think that uh, the, the ed schools are failing. And I think that this mono think, um, you know, as it filters down to K-12 as being exposed, as being as bereft as we all knew it was. And um, so now I think that the, um, what's the right word? I think that the reverberations are now going to resound upward. Um, I, I think they are as bankrupt at this point as they can get. And I do think I'm going to be optimistic here and say that we're at the point where there has to be a positive change. Um, but, but is that because that we're up close and personal with the change movement? We're all in, enmeshed in it all day long. And that, you know, it seems to me sometimes when I leave my bubble of those of us who are pushing back, you know, a lot of people don't even know that this culture war is happening, uh, let alone that there is opposition. They don't they're not aware of what their kids are learning. I just wonder if that uh, like 
yes, there's there, there's no question that the backlash is much further along than it was a year ago. I mean, I, I think that's without question. It's getting more organized. We're all getting more organized. But I just don't know to what degree it's perceived as such by the people who are promulgating these policies in schools. Um, you know, do they just say, oh, we're uh, see this as a minor nuisance of people who um, are trying to challenge their hegemony, or are they? Are they? Do they see us as uh, as a serious threat to that hegemony? And let me jump in there um, before you answer, if you don't mind, Bonnie, because I just want to give a, a, an antidote to that. I was on a call the other day with people making it was a debate on you know basically CRT in schools, and here's my thing: it's not that um, I think that people don't even know what's going on. So the people who were the question was, should we teach like race in schools? You know, it wasn't about CRT per se. They didn't use those words or anti-racism. So a lot of people who were on the pro side, you know, were talking about like, yeah, of course we should teach history. Well, but no one, no one is against that. And that's so, so they've pitted people who believe that, um, that that CRT or critical social justice is wrong. They've made them out to be, well, they don't want to teach history. And that showed up very clearly. This is these were quote common people, including myself, you know, who were having this discussion. And again, common people, um, I don't say that pejoratively, I'm one of them, you know, believe that the question was, well, people, we of course we should teach about like history okay, well, and slavery. And that's a classic Mott Bailey false. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's yep, a logical yep. fallacy, which brings me back to uh, a really important point, which is that, uh, you know, up until the 1950s, logic was a required course for anyone really to get a liberal arts degree in the United States. And, you know, around the 60s, we removed that. And um, at this point, it really, really shows because we hear, I hear logical fallacies and false arguments being promulgated as um, you know, a convincing as convincing uh, lodge as convincing evidence uh, pretty much every day. And uh, we're, you know, we're going to work with uh, probably a new organization called the Mill Center specifically to reinv- reinvigorate critical thinking and critical um, analysis. We at FIRE have created what we call our discourse clubs that I would encourage people to go to our website and check out at thefire.org slash K12. Uh, and, you know, we have five levels that we want to lead kids through. And so basically it's an after school club where kids can do what you're supposed to be doing in school anyway, which is learn how to have debates and how to engage constructively uh, on one another with one another to discuss important issues. Um, the shallowness of our thinking which we are seeing throughout our culture now really does frighten me. And actually I have a quote here that I wrote down after the recent, um, whatever you wanna call it, let's just say bungled operations in Afghanistan. You know, the president came out and here's what he said. He said, there has been complete unanimity from every commander on the objectives of this mission and the best way to achieve those objectives. Really? And, you know, he said this in order to reassure us that I guess the best minds were on the case, but that's a bad thing. That's a really bad thing. This this idea of unanimity and what you're describing with these, you know, DEI statements, these commitments, there's this this idea that we have to have consensus on issues or the other term that floats around in academia is collegiality. 
And that's used to insist that if you dissent or if you disagree or if you interrogate, so basically don't look closely. Uh, that is literally the definition of groupthink as Irving Janus defined it when he did a post-mortem on the Bay of Pigs disaster. Yes. Uh, dissent is good. Disagreement is good. And if you think that everyone agreeing in the room means that there are no other opinions in that room, you're a fool. And that's why at least I take the comfort of knowing that when teachers think they've got this consensus, they actually don't. Uh, but the problem is, you know, there's this great book called The Captive Mind by, um, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name of this Polish writer, but he, or Czechoslovakian rather, but he, he basically talks about how, you know, in an oppressive culture, people learn to become very good liars. And that frightens me tremendously that our children are learning how to lie, to go along, to get along. And that is not what we were like as kids. We were like spunky and rude. And our teachers, like that's that was encouraged among American educators as part of the American spirit. And again, I can't think of anything more dispiriting, discouraging and disempowering than the current ideolo ideologies that, um, you know, many of us are now fighting in the schools. So, Bonnie, before we let you go, yeah, that is... I lived in China for so long and I, I see that kind of group thinking and it, it really it disturbs me, but we could talk about that forever. What, you know, your book is also providing solutions for what we can do about it. Yeah. What are some of your like top solutions that you would give to, again, let's talk to the common folk um, like us as parents who aren't educators, how we can uh, come to a solution for our kids. Yeah, so I wrote down a couple of the top ones here. I think, unfortunately, you know, you're not going to be able to trust that your teacher is going to function in loco parentis like prior generations could. So, and uh, you are probably now, as a parent, going to have to at least have a more than a passing familiarity with these ideologies. Uh, and you'll need that because you're going to have to, you know, we're in a vaccination world right now. You're going to need to inoculate your kids against this by explaining to them this worldview. And then you're probably going to have to do the teacher's job, uh, if it's not a good teacher, of uh, contextualizing it and counterbalancing it at home. You might have to supplement. I have some really good ideas on that. If anybody wants to write to me at highschooloutreach at thefire.org, I have a lot of curricular supplemental ideas for ways to fill in the gaps of what's missing. So you're probably going to have to debrief your, you know, inoculate them before and debrief them afterwards and stay on touch uh, with what's going on. I'm a big believer in the learning standards. And um, as boring as they are, I recommend everybody go to your state website for the Department of Education, wherever you are, and learn the learning standards for your child's grade and each subject. And when this, you know, these loose lessons come along, you need to go in there and say, I'm sorry, but exactly what learning standard is this aligned with? Because if it's not aligned to one of the learning standards that's been democratically adopted by the state, that's a misuse of your tax dollars. And the teacher has no, if it's a public school, uh, you know, private schools have their own version of this. I would also recommend that you familiarize yourself with the codes of ethics that govern teaching. Um, there are codes from actually some really good ones, believe it or not, from the teachers unions. 
Uh, I don't think that they, you know, promote them or that they necessarily encourage their members always to adhere to them, but they're well-written and you can refer to those. And there are also um, ethical codes within probably for each state in the country. I haven't looked at all 50, but like in Pennsylvania, uh, the they have a very good admonition for teachers that I would encourage all teachers to mind, which is before you undertake any action in the classroom, ask yourself this question, whose needs are being met, mine or the students? I think a lot of this ideology is being promoted because it's the teacher's interest more than it's what's right for the kids. And that is not what you're paid a salary for. You can pursue your own interests in your own time, but when you're in the classroom, you are hired speech to deliver the curriculum that was assigned to you by your district, you know, in concert with the state. Um, and, uh, you know, I would also say that if, if it's true that, you know, the Frankfurt School at Columbia has uh, brought about this so-called long march through the institutions, which we, you know, maybe are seeing coming to fruition, I would just assert that um, it's time for the long counter march to begin. Mm. We're ready to join you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, oh, and please also, I would, I would encourage um, parents to check out FIRE's high school curriculum materials, which are awesome. standards aligned, are dealing mostly with uh, constitutional issues in hopefully engaging and relatable ways for kids. And those are freely downloadable. You can use them at home to supplement. You can take them to school, encourage teachers to use them. So we have a host of resources for families and edu educators at thefire.org slash K-12. I'll be sure to put that in, in the podcast notes too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. And in my book, check out my book. Yes, uh, that will be in the podcast notes too. I'm very excited. I'm so excited that I got a, a an advanced copy. I can't wait for other people to to read it and to to discuss further. Thank you, thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me today. I, I appreciate your interest in this important topic. Yeah, well, we appreciate thanks you. So much, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. A pleasure. Bye. -bye. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week, different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.